0: Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter.
1: Hello and welcome to this Aspen UK webinar on the future of cities. I'm sitting in an office, you might be able to see behind me, which has desks for 600 people. And today I've counted 37 people here. The same on the not-so-busy London street outside. There is so much space on the pavements in the shops around here, which is very central, that social distancing feels like it will never be a problem again. My city, which is London, might not be dying, but it certainly doesn't feel like it's thriving at the moment. I'm Penny Richards, the director of Aspen UK, and we're so glad you could join us properly from your home and not your office. We've been joined here by four remarkable people who've spent much of their professional lives pondering on what makes cities special. Not just since COVID-19 made the rest of us recognize and consider what we've always taken for granted and we're so delighted they could join us. Before I introduce you to Andrea and her panel of Aziza, Kulvir and Yael, a quick explanation about Aspen UK. Aspen UK is not a think tank, it's the opposite of a club. We think it's important to bring people together who might fundamentally disagree with each other, but who want to debate and confront their own ideas and their own values and are keen to explore effective solutions to pressing social issues. We are hugely committed to building communities of actively engaged and enlightened leaders, inspiring them to work for the common good. We normally carry out this mission through seminars and conferences and leadership programmes, But for now, the large part of our work is obviously virtual and we take great delight in meeting and welcoming a large range of people who choose to question what's happening in the world and reflect how they can contribute. Now to Andrea. She heads the Government Innovation Grant Programme at Bloomberg Philanthropies, the charitable foundation of Michael Bloomberg, a very well-known city mayor. This year, this Government Innovation Initiative will partner with over 200 cities around the world to equip city leaders with critical skills and support them in thinking of bold civic innovations. So we have no doubt that Andrea is absolutely the right person to steer us around this conversation. Andrea, thank you so much and and over to you.
2: Thank you so much, Pani. I'm delighted to be here and really excited to moderate uh, this discussion with three um, really incredible guests uh, with fascinating perspectives on the future of cities. And um, before we dive in, um, I just wanted to invite our speakers uh, to share a brief introduction of their work and its relationship to cities, um, starting with Aziza. Oh, Aziza, I think you're muted, I'm sorry. I was saying thank
3: you very much for the invitation. Um, Andrea and Penny, I'm really delighted to be part of this panel. I'm Aziza Akmoush, I work for the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. We're based in Paris and our job is to advise governments on how to design and implement better policies for better lives and I'm head of the division at the OECD that works on cities, urban policies and sustainable development.
2: Wonderful, thank you. And Yael?
4: Uh, Good afternoon everyone, and thank you for inviting me to speak today. I am the chief economist of KPMG in the UK and I'm also a research fellow at NISA, where I look in particular at um, how to level up um,
2: different regions in the UK. Thanks, and Colvier.
0: Thanks, Andrea. And uh, my name's Culver Ranger. I'm uh, uh, look after strategy and communication for Atos in the UK, we're a major uh, global technology business. And we're looking at how technology is impacting public, private sector, all those different services that we all use so much more nowadays. Um, but I also spent four years working for the Mayor of London, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, and looked after the transport environment and set up the digital office for London back then. And by the way, Andrea worked with uh, Mayor Bloomberg's team and him. Uh, in our time uh, when I was at City Hall. So uh, we had a lot of exchange of ideas with Mayor Bloomberg, cracking man. That's
2: excellent, thank you. Um, So uh, I'm delighted uh, to be joined by the three of you and engage in this discussion. Um, As Penny just mentioned in the introduction for our guests, um, please uh, enter any questions into the Q&A throughout our discussion. We're going to uh, talk for the next probably 25 minutes or so, and then open it up to the floor and take questions. Um, So to kick things off, Aziza, uh, the OECD is always very good at giving us the the macro picture. Um, We know that this last century has seen a real boom in people um, moving to urban areas around the world. Uh, Are residents going to quit large metro areas and and settle down in smaller cities? Is the end of the golden age of cities upon us now with the COVID-19 crisis?
3: Well, this is actually a discourse that we are hearing more and more. And I think the anxiety that the lockdown has generated for many urban dwellers, depending on their living conditions, was also an eye opener on whether we are living where we have to live because of jobs and productivity or whether we are living where we want to live. And there are some interesting uh, indicators that have come out uh, in many OECD countries, for example, from the real estate sector, where um, we could see that there was a jump of uh, about 20 percentage points in uh, Paris surroundings about uh, households actually looking for individual houses in smaller or more medium sized cities outside large agglomeration areas, because they've been basically uh, the places, those large aglo areas where uh, the pandemic hit very hard, not only because of the promiscuity and, and poor and complicated living conditions but also um because they're economic drivers and and powerhouses and therefore are feeling somehow the the economic and social implications of the crisis i i think two 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 parts to respond to the question the first one is that um My personal conviction is that what we call the urban premium, meaning the agglomeration benefits that we get from people gathering, concentrating in large metro areas is not going to become an urban penalty, even if there are many costs uh, related to that agglomeration, whether it's housing uh, affordability or traffic congestion or air pollution but there may be um, some, let's say, uh, shifts towards uh, smaller size cities for those who can afford teleworking that are close to metro areas because they can continue to borrow those agglomeration benefits while having maybe uh, living conditions that are much better in terms of access to the nature, green space, less traffic and so on. So that's the first point and I think that's definitely a card to play for mid-sized cities in many OECD countries that are now working on their attractiveness. The second side, which is a bit of a footnote, is is that even if with uh, digitalization and telework we have seen that we were able in these past six months to replace somehow physical proximity by digital proximity and therefore many people being able to telework we are not agglomerating in cities only for work we are agglomerating in large cities also for access to services the tertiarization of our economies and I don't think this can all be substituted by telework so it's true all health crisis pandemics even the the cholera in the 19th century in Paris have led to a rethinking of our cities re-engineering of our infrastructure and digital is the big difference this time but there are many uh, parameters i would say in what drives individual preferences in terms of where we settle and what i think will happen and i'll finish with that is that we'll have a shift towards a much more polycentric form of urban uh, settings that combine small, medium and large metropolitan areas as as drivers for for growth and inclusion in a strong connection with rural areas and hinterlands so it's not a radical shift. there may be some changes individual here and there, but in terms of urban policy it's really working towards this polycentricity
2: mm. and uh, that that point about not a radical shift but but a shift nonetheless um, colvier. Um, you know, is this shift something that was accelerated by COVID, but um, it, it was already predicted and enabled by 5G? And, you know, has COVID just accelerated what was happening anyway?
0: Yeah, Andrea. I think, you know, COVID and the consequences of it, which are still to play out, let's, let's be honest, we're still very much in the foothills of the ramifications in a medium and longer term of how we're all having to handle the pandemic and responding and reacting to it. So any major shifts that we're seeing right now um, are not necessarily what we're going to see play out over a long period of time. I think, you know, there's a bit of a knee-jerk reaction that does happen. (laughs) But to your point about, you know, what's been happening over a period of time, cities are continually evolving. Uh, The dynamic change that a city has continues as it seeks to uh, adapt to different uh, requirements, different demographics, different cases of uh, investment, uh, different economic cycles, all have that huge impact. The one thing we have seen, and it has been consistent, and I don't think it's going to change, is the increase in populations living in global cities. So what drives people to live in a city, uh, being in that hub, and generally also let's talk about the, the age demographic, that age group of younger people coming together, uh, many different types of activities, uh, an exchange of activities that happen in, in urban environments is con- is going to continue. The question then happen- then is asked is, one of the big pieces of that dynamic, which has been the work environment and the impact of COVID on the work environment, how is that going to play a part of the city? But what I did see, when even in my time at City Hall, and we were discussing the future of cities, And a decade ago, and it still is the case, a primary issue has been quality of life and the environment in cities and how do increasing populations have a good quality of life in a city environment. That sustainable conversation must be still at the heart of everything we think about when it comes to cities. So personal mobility, the impact on the environment, air quality, green spaces, sustainable infrastructure, buildings, but the usage and what's going to happen in cities, yes, I think that's going to involve and was evolving. And we saw that because I could see in London and I could see in other major cities that the centre, which for a period of time has been considered a, 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 a commute point for work, get to the closest point to the centre to do your work, had been dissipating to different parts of the city, whether that was clusters in a city or to the fringe of the city or even outside of the city. And the question that I think some policy makers, I wouldn't say all, were asking themselves was what is then happening in the city? Because, by the way, you could still see a driver for people to be attracted to the city. And one key indicator is uh, house pricing or property pricing. Cities still driving ever increasing property prices. But what was the reason? And we could see that the center and its dynamics of cultural use, bringing people together together, Uh, shared activities and hubs of activities um, were beginning to become more important and more pertinent than them being the commute driver for work. And and the interesting point there to note, because it plays a part when I was looking closely at it from a transport strategy perspective, was that if you looked at it, say in the 40s and 50s, where the motor car was the primary, you know, uh, decider on how cities were being designed. In London, we bulldozed these big roads, we call them the A roads into the centre of London, 12 of them coming in at different points, because it was felt that people would only want to accelerate their way into the centre to work and accelerate their way out to the end, to the fringe to live. And as we developed, we found that, that we felt those those routes fragment, fragmenting uh, and less and less that kind of requirement. But the fragmentation is happening in the villages that actually were in the city anyway, people finding spoken hubs, kind of ways of living and working. So to answer your question in a very long way, but the short answer is, yes, COVID is going to turbo change, but the change has already happened. And the question will be, as we redesign what's happening in the center of the city uh, for more human activity.
2: Mm, thank you. Um, you know, you, you bring up a number of points there, one of which uh, I think resonating with Aziza is this idea that um, there's still a big draw uh, um, cities are still a big draw for a number of reasons, beyond just work. We know that um, cities are, have obviously been weathering a massive public health crisis um, as it relates to uh, the COVID-19 crisis, and that is going to be introducing, uh, is introducing, a financial crisis. Um, for cities. And Yael, we've been talking about cities sort of generically, but um, we know they're very different. Which cities are best equipped to weather this crisis um, and why?
4: Um, well, so I think, I mean, it, it's quite obvious in the sense that c- cities that are less vulnerable are cities that rely less on public transport for commuting and less Commuting, so it would be by nature less dense and and smaller uh, cities or towns that would make it easier for for workers to come back even in the current um, under the current conditions it 's also cities that are less dependent on international tourism, so they 're not really magnet for for tourists so they won 't lose that potential income um, and then on the other hand it 's cities where workers can work remotely more more um, easily so at least in terms of the income um, of, of the surrounding um, of the surrounding area of, of workers but also the incomes of businesses that are still based there that would be uh, less less or less impact there but also it needs to be cities that have very good co- um, telecommunications so they need to have good internet good broadband etc um, in order to, to have that, you need good code connectivity that you don't always have. And then finally, I mean, in this, this current crisis, a lot depends on the quality of the health uh, infrastructure in cities, as well as the um, test and trace um, infrastructure. So it's really the basic around health um, that helps cities recover more quickly and, and suffer less from lockdowns, etc. in the immediate of this crisis.
2: And what about cities that are, what about cities in countries? I mean, I, I'm assuming there are in many places, um, you know, governments are going to have to spend their way out of the crisis to some degree or borrow their way out of this financial crisis. What about cities that are in countries um, that cannot take on debt, you know, what is going to happen, you know, when we, we look around the world at, you know, different sized economies, the wealth gap, uh, inequality, um, are, are there going to be cities that are left behind?
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. If you even even if you start thinking about the vaccine and, and how prepared certain cities are likely to be compared to others, and, and how how long some cities will need to weather under pandemic conditions compared to others. So that's already starting point where we, would, we are going to have this inequality. Um, and then moving on from that, obviously you have different resources. You also have cities with, that have more localized power to, to, to get um, income as well as spend income and, and cities that are, are based on more centralized Um, Systems that have less uh, freedom, but also potentially also have more help from the um, central government. So there's there's obviously going to be a lot of disparity there. I think the key, really the key uh, in a crisis like this is trying and be as efficient in local government as possible, prioritize what's really important, prioritize what the people, uh, local people really need. And try and try and um, be as helpful as possible, I think in crisis like this, this is really important. The quality of local government and how they prioritize um, their activities and spending is really crucial.: mm.
2: yeah, thank you um, Aziza, I know that you you know thinking about your work. Um, Through uh, some of your mayoral initiatives at the OECD, direct city initiatives, are are there examples of cities, um, you know, that like like Yael is saying that have done an especially good job of being effective, of prioritizing, even of being, you know, kind of innovating in, in crisis and, you know, anything that has surprised you out there in terms of the way cities have performed? Yes, actually,
3: we have mapped and uh, analyzed uh, policy responses to COVID-19 in about 100 cities of the OECD uh, 37 economies, and and there are a few interesting messages that come out of it. The first one, and going back to your earlier point about cities' fiscal capacity and their prerogatives in the health sector, is that surprisingly, uh, local and regional governments in the OECD uh, uh, region are only responsible for one quarter of spending related to health. Of course, you have then a huge diversity between countries where it's mostly decentralized, and this is the case of uh, Norway, Spain, and a few others and countries like France, where it's less than 10%. But the interesting uh, lesson that came out of the crisis is that regardless of that level of decentralization of health as such, most cities have actually understood that they are the main drivers of what we call the determinants of health, the social, economic and environmental determinants of health, because they all in most cases, have core prerogatives that have to do with urban mobility, with housing, energy efficiency in building, land use, how you manage public space, how you uh, supply water, sanitation, how you deal with transport. And this is a very important message because we could have somehow um, uh, folding a trap that is uh, it didn't work and we couldn't handle it because we're not in charge of health per se. Let's reopen the discussion on decentralization. But We have seen that actually in these policy responses, all the cities have been really front runners in at least four main areas. First, how they target vulnerable communities. And that's definitely the proximity of the local government that enabled, uh, you know, in cities like Bilbao, having 10 staff of the local administration calling 60,000 people that are above 60 year old on a regular basis to just check on their health and see whether, you know, they need something and set up this solidarity mechanism that only a local government can do. They've been key also dealing with migrants, with homeless people. Um, Other categories included the continuity of local services, making sure that we're not shutting down drinking water for people who cannot afford, avoiding eviction for unpaid rents. you know, supporting uh, business, local business and SMEs. I mean, all the discussions around the terraces that were built out of nowhere to allow restaurants to recover and accommodate social distancing. Those kinds of measures, you know, are really measures that local governments have all taken in OECD countries, despite the initial institutional setting where maybe they would have thought that their role was purely to implement nationwide measures. And this is very surprising and very, um, I would say, reassuring to see this complementarity across shared levels of government. Now, and and that's my final point. What is very important is that those measures that were put in place during the lockdown and in the early stage of the deconfinement become much more structural and lasting over the, of the over the long term and we start seeing that more and more countries because also this was an eye opener to governance gaps in in different OECD countries are actually shaping their recovery strategies in that shared responsibility with uh, local and regional government we see it even in the UK how core cities and their umbrella organization are engaged in these types of discussion and if there's one takeaway that can be you know um, a positive going forward is that this may have been also an accelerator in the improvement of that multi-level governance. But it's, I think, uh, quite uh, interesting to see that cities have been really on the front line of of dealing with the direct implications of the crisis, but also experimenting and innovating a number of solutions that are then replicated at larger scale.
2: Mm, Yeah, thank you. Um, I I love your point about, um, you know, local leaders taking responsibility for these health determinants, even if they don't have direct authority over health systems. One of them you mentioned was transportation and that link between transportation and health outcomes. Um, A question for you and um, Colvir maybe on that is, you know, are our cities trying to seize the opportunity right now um, for radical changes as it relates to mobility? or, you know, are, are we just uh, setting back our public transport for decades because it is now woefully underfunded because of this this crisis?
0: Great question. Um, uh, firstly, I want to just say to Yale's and Aziza's point, and I absolutely agree, that the quality of local government politicians and policymaking is going to be essential at this point. And, and I say that um, because, you know, well, cities go through crises, and as you say, Andrea, are, are on the front line. Um, and, you know, at City Hall, when I was there in 2008, we arrived, uh, and a financial crisis, global financial crisis occurred at that point, we'll all remember it. Uh, and that had a huge impact on city finances across the world, including London. Um, but cities also have an agenda that they always have to deliver to. So we still had, at that point, the biggest infrastructure program in, in London since World War II. We had the biggest transport program to deliver around the building of Crossrail uh, in Europe. And we had the Olympic Games to prepare for for 2012. Wow. So, you, you know, although crisis happen, cities have to manage that and still keep their agendas going forward to, to continue to drive. So I really want to play at that point of quality local government leadership is essential. But in terms of transport as well, yes, look, there's also a pact between um, city leadership and its people which is that you're going to experiment. You're going to be innovative. You're going to want to lead. Every city wants to be unique and always will tell you they are because they're all different, right? They're never all the same. They've got their own reasons to be different and quite rightly so, but they can't, they can't break the trust between the interventions they make and the populace they're serving. And when anyone, any politicians or cities move too fast, to make changes, that's where you can see the unforeseen consequences of poorly thought-through policy making. So, where some people's radical is an immediate response to a crisis to say, "Okay, let's take this approach," as let's say road usage, because we've had this radical reduction in people on the roads. Well, what are the what are the implications of that as we try to get back to a, a, a reform city? You know, If you start to take away road space to do other things, that could be quite right. You've got to manage that over a long period of time over different uh, criteria and make sure that the consequences are actually dealt with. And I think I have seen some cities, including my own London, taking dramatic uh, interventions in, in road space. But the consequences can be that even at this reduced level, we generate increased potential traffic, congestion, and pollution because we're not looking at it across the board and how we're going to manage the longer-term delivery of the policy and what else needs to happen to support policy. So cities can be radical, they can be uh, responsive, but they still need to think through and plan uh, what their strategy is and what their vision is. It can't just be knee-jerk reaction policies uh, as one-off implementations that don't then all add up into an integrated uh, way of managing the city. And I think that is, again, I come back to the early point, good leadership, even in a crisis, will think about it in the longer term, about what actions we're taking now for the longer term benefit of the city. And I think that has to be at the fundamental uh, in the thinking of all city leaders at the moment.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you. Um, Aziza, uh, do you agree when it comes to transport? Do you see um, any evidence out there that this is a, a moment for Um, Any radical changes when it comes to mobility in cities?
3: Absolutely, and, and you know, I, I think uh, the combination of uh, what I call the Zoom effect and the Greta effect uh, has somehow, in many OECD countries, accelerated the environmental awareness and makes today uh, politically and socially more acceptable a number of solutions that were not just a year ago. I don't know if some of you heard about the big bronca, you know, against Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, when she uh, decided to close some parts of the city to cover and the law for cycling path and so on. Now everybody in France is building cycling paths. We call them even Corona pistes, you know, uh, in French. And this is the way to go. And we need to um, increase this form of micro-mobility. Of course, uh, this goes in line with uh, the shift or at least the, the greater awareness that we need to shift from a logics of mobility to one of accessibility. Also building amenities near where people live and work rather than continuing to take people from a point A to a point B. This is the way to go. We know that cars are stopped 90% of the time, that 50% of the urban space is directly or indirectly related to cars. So those patterns are not sustainable. Now, when you have said that, we also have to be very cautious about a discourse that sometimes we hear and is a bit elitist or doesn't factor in inequality. Because the reality is that most people cannot go to work cycling or walking. When you take the functional approach of the city, which is where people work and live, it doesn't stop at the administrative boundaries of the core city. So it's not the end of public transportation, even despite, you know, the anxiety that social distancing is generating still uh, these days, we need a menu of option that is much, much more wide than cycling and walking as the alternatives to individual car and this is where not only public transportation and the heavy investments that are there and needed but also uh, driverless cars other forms of, of technologies that are on the rise should be accessible to all to make sure that you don't fall in a trap where those who are rich live in nice neighborhood can afford walking and cycling and then those who are in the suburbs are stuck because they cannot take their car nor use effective transport so it's very important to feature this in equality dimension. It's very important to have an approach for transport that goes beyond the core urban centers and that looks at the commuting flows. And I think what cities are doing now in terms of micro-mobility is a very good way to uh, proceed, but it will not be enough if we don't have a much uh, more ambitious uh, investment in public transportation and other alternatives in the future. Mm,
2: Thank you. Um, Yael, uh, Aziza just Brought up a number of good points. One of which is um, the relationship between public transport and inequality, which unfortunately we know is uh, there's a strong correlation there. Um, when when we map out uh, transportation mobility options and income across a city, um, uh, you know, making progress on some of those issues requires funding. And I think the big question on a lot of people's minds, particularly, um, you know, the city leaders that, that we work with is, you know, how bad is this crisis going to be? And um, we, we get a lot of uh, information out there. Some of it is um, some of the predictions are, um, you know, less bad, and some of them are absolutely, you know, apocalyptic when it comes to what, what and when and what the recovery might look like. Um, that's why we're we're very happy that you're here to set the record straight on w- whether there will, in fact, be a V-shaped recovery uh, economically um, in in London and in other cities around the world.
4: Yeah. So so, I mean, it it is probably shaping you know at the moment. There's quite a lot of uncertainty, but just. Just point. There's a few points I wanted to mention related to what Aziz has just said, and maybe contradict them a little bit, Um, in the sense that I think what we need to bear in mind is, and what is really important, is that um, people are unlikely to to go back to exactly what they did before. And before, especially if I look at it from a UK perspective, and not just London, but actually even looking more towards the north as well, where we really had a problem with congestion and it wasn't really about equality so much. It was about not being able to access, to go to work because you didn't have the transport infrastructure on the the commute, the commuting hours. Yeah. If we're now going to have a much more flexible working where people will go back to the office, but they're not going to do their nine to five or whatever that was before every day, It does mean that the volume of commuters we're going to have in in cities, not just London, New York, etc., but actually cities like Manchester, Sheffield, etc., in in, to give UK as an example. Then we really need to think about the type of transport infrastructure that we need, um, because obviously we do want to discourage. Um, cars and we have seen a little bit of an increase in, in the usage of, of cars um, during this, this, this crisis which is understandable because of the, the people's concerns um, but, but you know the congestion in, in cities like London has shot up completely. I mean this is you know, amazing from, from one day where you had no traffic on the road to a point where you cannot cross the river anymore in london because um it is impossible to move so i think i think what, what the fear i have is that even if we have a relatively quick recovery um which it's not going to be that quick we are going to have all governments are going to be very constrained in terms of the amount of money that will be available and the fear is that they will just revert back and saying okay we want to Pull some money in because central banks can't really help us too much. It's really all about fiscal policy now. We want to pull some money in to try and get the economy to recover faster. So where have we got plans ready? there's loads of these shovel-ready transport projects um, that we can just kick kick start today. But that's maybe not the right thing to do because those are plans for a world that will not go back to. And there's probably other infrastructure um, projects or even going beyond that. If you think about inequality and what were problems that we have at the moment, education is one of them, where we've got at least a portion of, of students who had no access to education and the portion that has potentially had better access to education during the lockdown, that is a big investment that we need to make. Um, helping those kids potentially more important than just building another rail rail line that people will no longer need as much we really need to revisit the future usage of transport that I'm sure Culver will have a lot to say about in a few moments so just going back to your question I think it's going it is likely to be a u-shaped recovery just because we're Entering winter, we've seen the escalation of COVID, of COVID cases. We're seeing more and more restrictions, local um, shutdowns as well. And we're all waiting for a vaccine to come and for, for further progress in testing and tracing and in just med- medicines that will al- alleviate the symptoms. All that will take time. It's not going to be before next year, sometime next year. We're very hopeful it will be in the first half of of next year. So say by August next year, there'll no longer really be a pandemic as we know it in the developed economies. We still have potentially quite a lot of developing economies that may not get there as quickly and we will need to help them more with access to vaccines if all goes well. So we still have probably about a year, almost a year to live with this crisis which means that it's going to take a bit longer. Markets are probably under um, appreciating the length of this, a bit impatient. Um,
2: thank you. A- Aziza, any, any response to that in
3: yeah, I like very much the point. And actually, I, I fully agree um, that telework uh, will be leveraged, that this is not just a responsibility of government, that the private sector and companies who basically have experienced in six months what would have taken a, a decade to understand that Telework is not necessarily synonymous of productivity loss. Will need to uh, play their share, but I will uh, bring two two you know uh, arguments to that. The first one is that not everybody can telework. We have actually just produced indicators at the OECD where we see, for example, in France that the Paris suburb uh, region has a teleworkability rate of about 50 percent, one in two jobs. But then you have a 20 percentage point difference with the region of South Normandy where the industrial composition of the sector is different the labor market is different and also it's not just the digital divide whether you have 4g 5g it's also whether you're equipped with the it infrastructure we've seen regions in the south of italy where 40 percent of households didn't have a computer and that means just how you get the kids continue to to have education and how you work in parallel when you don't have the equipment and most importantly and that's the big elephant in the room Uh, mainstreaming teleworking will imply in a number of countries revisiting radically our labor legislation, how we measure productivity, how we conceive hierarchy. And these are, you know, the neoclassical management successes such as office space, clean desk. I mean, are these valid options for the future? This is a question mark. And the second and last point, which I I fully agree, I think we will need to resynchronize or desynchronize our social lives. I agree that whether you telework or not, maybe not everybody needs to be in the uh, traffic jam or in the public transportation peak uh, at 9 a.m. Maybe if we revisit in a smart way uh, the way we live throughout the day, we will have less peaks in terms of energy consumption, we'll have more fluidity in terms of uh, mobility, and we'll have maybe better usage also of infrastructure. What is a school a day can be something else in the evening, and this shift towards multipurpose infrastructure is actually the way to go also to minimize the investment needs. So I think those are not incompatible, but but it's true. Sometimes we hear teleworking being the panacea for uh, most it is not but
2: for those that have that option definitely it's something that needs to be leveraged. Mm, Thank you. Um, I I want to jump to some of the questions we've had a number of questions coming in. Um, uh, Colvira I want to start with one for you Um, and this is this is I think an important one that that we haven't touched on yet. Major events play a crucial role in attracting people to cities What's going to happen to events? What role will they play in the coming years? Uh, can, can technology in any way accelerate uh, the restarting of events? Um, what's your prediction there on, um, on events?
0: Yeah, look, it, it sort of lines up with what Yale was saying about uh, the health part of this conversation and how quickly... Uh, will confidence return in people wanting to do certain things based on health? That, that's the underlying question. And that has an impact on whether people come back to an office space, go to a friend's house, are allowed to go to a friend's house, are allowed to go to major sporting events. Uh, and I think, you know, events were already evolving. People were becoming more virtual events. I think we've all seen about um, uh, the option to see a concert online, or I, I've attended a wedding through Facebook and various other things of this kind. So there, there is that change, but These events will still happen the live events will come back i have no doubt in that uh, especially in the first level as track and trace uh, becomes much more effective and i see i think we'll see an acceleration in its capability its implementation and its actual adoption but also then you know eventually as we get to probably a point where uh, we have kind of a um, a something that can give us immunization as well but i think that that's a critical journey pattern ongoing what's going to happen around this pandemic and we have to map that into the longer term conversation of city planning because let's be clear cities evolve over decades they don't tend to change you know they're kind of they're not quite glacial but they are big large infrastructure people change that takes time and evolve i say this as the person and under boris boris johnson we were bringing a cycling revolution we brought in you know Forest bikes, um, cycle lanes, walking—all all of that stuff. But also coming back to Yale's point that, you know, why is London gridlocked right now? Because the radical decisions that are being made as interventions are old-school policies implemented to take an opportunity right now, rather than thinking what is it that we can actually do that's new and different now. You know, ten years ago. We brought in uh we were saying about electric vehicles they've arrived and they're being used but i set up the london electric vehicle partnership in 2008 to get them on the roads what we should be thinking about now is the combination of technology platforms what people want to do at what time and enable a different form of transport mobility a personal ecosystem that helps us move around the city regardless of what we want to do, whatever time we want to do it, and how we want to do it. and what I've been talking about, um, by the way, personal ecosystem, personal digital ecosystem for quite a few years. What that means is each one of us has built this system around us. We've all bought um, devices. I'm sure most people have a laptop, a tablet, a phone, maybe two or three of them in some cases. We all then have our networks, our platforms such as Facebook, um, LinkedIn, Twitter, all all the social media platforms. And then we have our connectivity. We're all paying for broadband and Wi-Fi. So each one of us has created our own ecosystem that at the moment is generally capitalized by private sector industry trying to sell us uh, food, get it delivered to us or whatever it may be. But our platforms, our networks, our infrastructure, leverage for other people. Right now is a time for cities and governments to start looking at that ecosystem and how it works for us in this in future environment. How can we use that ecosystem to enable car sharing, platforms for mobility that enable easy access, um, helping us understand um, usage patterns, personalized, absolutely, so we can look at where we want to go. And the linkages between the platforms, the technology, the connectivity, and the individual's requirements are going to be crucial for policymakers going forward. And I say that Because it's these guys who have to get at their head round all the opportunity that both the crisis has given us and the technology gives us. And the thing around it is that the opportunity has to be designed from the perspective of the citizen. When I talk about the personal digital ecosystem, it's from that individual's perspective that the use case and the scenarios need to be developed and designed. Unfortunately, what happens is we tend to look at it from a city perspective and down onto the population and go, how do we overlay the big challenges that we have? So we've got to invert that, take this opportunity, look at the opportunity in terms of technology, kind of kick the old policies that we had, you know, sitting on the shelf, gathering dust and going, let's bring those out because they're great and radical and we never got to do them before. So now is the time. But, and it's good to do that as well, but let's now look as we have this potential year or two To evolve some of those new ideas that can nudge utilize and take people into a new era of city living
2: um i i uh i think there's a lot more to say on that one especially the you know thinking about individual privacy and um you know how cities are able to um you know really harness the power of the data that's available in ways that are um I think just add that, Andrew, mm-hmm.
0: the, the, the privacy point is going to be tackled really head on with track and trace. Okay? Oh. We're, we're, we've kind of gone into this now because through the demand for us to use track and trace, privacy is suddenly a big issue and it should be. Oh. But by the way, we have had a privacy debate through smart card platforms that have tracked data to transport mobility, you know, so we've gone through the first phase of that. We're now into a phase of personal data around health. So yes, there, there is that conversation to be had, yeah. but there's huge opportunity.
2: Yeah. Um, I want to jump to another topic. A couple of questions have come in um, around planning and specifically, um, uh, these are UK focused, but I think, um, you know, would welcome uh, responses um, uh, related to the UK or, or elsewhere around, you know, housing supplies and demand, the impact of the crisis on the housing crisis that so many cities around the world are facing um, is now the time for even more changes to local planning. Um, what and uh, a- another question around the impact of um, recent uh, planning changes in the UK and you know whether whether those will have an impact. So um, thoughts, Aziz or Yael? Um, uh, I'll let either of you jump in first on. Uh, housing, planning, and the relationship to the crisis and its aftermath.
4: Maybe maybe I'll just start very quickly. I mean, there is definitely an issue in the UK. It's a cultural thing about um, what we call not in my um, <laughs> backyard. Um, so so there's a relicance to give up on the green belt. Um, and and that is likely to continue. I think what you, you would see is that... Um, we are going to see, and we've already seen it, that the prices of properties outside London, but within commutable distance. so there's, people are thinking of maybe coming in one, only one or two days a week, so they can allow for, for longer commutes than previously. We've seen those interest in those properties rising quite significantly, whereas um, properties in the cent- city center are potentially under more strength in terms of prices. And I think that's really the beginning of of a a transformation. We are probably going to see the the core city centers slightly changing, and that's going to have impact on on property prices, not just housing prices, but also offices, because we are likely to see companies downsizing their needs for, for office space. Um, and, and that would impact prices. But then what we'll hope to see is other tenants coming in, be it universities or, or incubators and co- collaboration hubs, um, or be it tenants um, as well. So young people that actually prefer to be in city centres, and now it's actually it, it's more affordable. Or what you could also see is... Um, people that have retired, but they're very keen opera levels and they want to be in the city centre, like in large cities like London, where they have very strong and rich cultural offering, and then they'll have, they'll have a small home in, in the city. So I think we are likely to see a big change in, um, in the way um, cities, especially large cities, are, are, um, are, are set up, um, and, and also in, in pricing, to reflect that, um, but, but generally, as, as COVID mentioned earlier, cities and, and generally housing are quite slow to respond for a range of, of, of uh, reasons, and therefore I think we're going to see more a change in use, rather a, a huge surge in building as such of, of more of more properties. Um, to 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 address um, different demands. Okay. On, on, just on the house on the on High Street, which is another thing that is an issue, and we had the relaxation there. I think one of the things we need to be very very careful with is is what we call the clustering effect. So, for example, if you have a High Street and all of a sudden you've got one or two shops um, disappearing and there's a change of views. That, and, and then just one shop left, then that would probably be a big issue for that shop, because it's, people are less likely to come, because it's no longer the house of all the antiques or the house of whatever the, the, the high street or the section where uh-huh. there's a certain things that people come to. People don't normally come to just to one shop. So I think that's a little bit of a, a problem at the moment, where, as I said earlier, I really think that as a result of this crisis, we need to start with a blank sheet and have a really thorough um, planning of, of cities and towns as a result of it and what people need rather than just do this ad hoc business mm. of trying to
2: fix a few things. Mm. Thank you. And I, I want to come back to your point. You, you mentioned you know, the, the new potential tenants in some of this empty space, you know, universities, other You know, um, I I wanna come back to that because there were some questions about, you know, how do cities creatively make use of office space that exists and potentially they, you know, um, uh, will not be in demand to the same degree in the future. But first I wanna go back to Aziza on this question of housing and planning and, and get your perspective.
3: Yes, and I, and I won't cover the UK specifics, but to give you an idea of what uh, we've seen in the OECD uh, region overall, uh, as we said earlier, COVID-19 was a sort of uh, accelerator or eye opener or magnifying glass on inequality at large, and of course, housing quality, quantity and affordability is definitely uh, part of the equation. In all OECD countries, but two, those are Greece and Japan, Um, housing prices have increased constantly since 2005, constantly, whether it's for rent or whether it's for purchase. before the, the, the COVID crisis, we already had one in three low income uh, household that was devoting more than 40% of its uh, uh, disposable income to uh, housing, which tells you a lot about uh, what this is generating in terms of uh, of quality of life. And it's true, we are doing currently some empirical work um, that, that shows that uh, there is a direct correlation between land use restrictions and housing prices, of course, and uh, the countries where you have tighter um, planning systems, uh, you don't have a a, a different menu of options in terms of zoning, etc., are uh, countries that have little room for maneuver and that are therefore facing this uh, bubble. Um, There are a number of interesting mechanisms in addition to 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 emphasizing planning that uh, we are also uh, looking at, for example, the the contribution uh, or or the increase of the use of land value capture to finance, you know, and address this housing affordability issue and and other infrastructure um, at large. Uh, We are also seeing that uh, mid-sized cities are are actually playing on the uh, housing uh, card, if I can say so, which needs to be combined with the transport uh, policy, because if you disconnect connect the two, uh, you are basically building houses and not cities. And that's always the big issue that then leads to urban sprawl and so on. So this is a big issue. It has always been uh, a concern, I have to say, in many OECD countries for the past decade. But definitely uh, the lockdown here and the fact that even urban planner architects and uh, not so low income families have had to uh, uh, really understand and, and realize uh, their living conditions on a daily basis. and pay attention, including in terms of um, uh, design, to uh, details such as the size of balconies or, or other aspects that maybe were less important in the past will probably be an accelerator.
2: Mm. Yes, uh, indeed. We've, we've all uh, gotten to know our houses probably much more than we, we ever wanted to, I think, over the last six months. Um, Yael, coming back to that question about um, uh, office space in cities. You know, if you were giving advice right now to local leaders about, you know, the, the best way to seize the moment if there is an opportunity there in relation to uh, space that is available now or likely available in the future and, and how cities might be most thoughtful um, and, and effective in thinking about using that space, what, what would you say?
4: So I think I think people need to think about the city, or local government need to think about the city as an experience. It needs to become an experience that people want to go there on a day trip from from where they live because they have certain experiences that, that they can't have um, locally because they're maybe too expensive to to have everywhere. And and it's it's nice. It's easy to commute, but but it's also nice to be there. So there's. There's green space, there's blue space, there's, um, there's a lot of um, amenities and it's really a place for people to get together because people will come to, to the city to get together and to experience things they can't, do, can, can't have at home. Ah. So that's how they need to refigure it um, and it's much less about trying to squeeze in as many desks as possible in the city centers because you no longer need to do it. So yeah. I think that will be a reflection in price, but, but more than reflection in price, it's, it's, it's creating a different experience. Yeah. And I think it's really important to see a city as as a place that people want to be in. They don't need to go there anymore to for work. They want to be there because it actually brings them a benefit. And also, there will still be a big chunk of the population that will live in cities and they need to be looked after. And that is also very important. They need to be a priority because if you want to attract businesses to your city and you want to attract investment, you will need to attract the employees and the talent ultimately as well. Mm.
2: Thank you. And that, that point about um, people don't, necessarily need to be in cities to work anymore that seems to be a theme that has come up uh throughout this conversation so uh, a good takeaway there i think um and penny has reappeared i fear that she's 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 stopping us there perhaps
1: i haven't planned to but i i think it is actually quite a enriching place to stop actually i think the idea that that you've all brought together at the end that you know, cities are places still to be celebrated. They're not places where we just see them as a sort of consequence of work. Um, yeah, it was really nice to hear you talk about how cities might in the future become a place to, to celebrate and, and enjoy and experience what we can't have at home it's, probably is a nice place to finish. Um, it was very chastening, though, to hear the less salutary things that you've been discussing, the idea that that digital working... Still isn't accessible to so many people. That so many people don't have access to the digital infrastructure that a lot of us take for granted, and how clearly that needs to be worked on. But I've learned a huge amount. I've I've I know that we asked a lot of you um, to romp through so many subjects related to cities in such a short time. But um, I'm really grateful for your for your expertise and and your enthusiasm. And and thank you so much for stretching our understanding of the future of our cities. Um, Andrea, Aziza Kulvia and Yarel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very
4: much. Thank you.
0: That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at UK underscore Aspen. And to stay up to date with our work and future discussions, check out our website at aspenuk.org. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.